everybody. Welcome to the Bigger Insights Privacy and Security Podcast, the best podcast in the history of podcasts. In this episode, we're going to talk about free and open source software and why it matters. Before we get too deep into the weeds, let's go over some background items to make sure that we're all on the same page. So when we say free in the context of free and open source software, or FOSS, we'll probably be saying FOSS a lot, we mean freedom. Free as in freedom, not necessarily free as in free beer. Now, it is the case that open source software oftentimes is free, as in there's no cost to you, but we're really focused on freedom here. When we say open source, we just mean that the source code for the software is publicly available, meaning that you can read through it if you want and you know how to read software. Obviously, not everybody's going to do that, but it's still helpful to know that there are people out there like security researchers, for example, who are going to review that code and, you know, potentially identify or recommend fixes to make it better. One thing to keep in mind with open source software is it is relatively common that the source code for the client software is open source, but not necessarily the server code. And sometimes uh, software vendors do that to protect their servers because that code might contain things to help fight against spam and abuse and things like that. And if they make that code available, it makes it very easy for scammers and spammers and hackers to find ways to get around their anti-abuse measures. So that's that's pretty common with things like VPN software, where the client software that you actually run on your computer is open source, but the code that they run on their servers might not be. And when it comes to software that relies on encryption, that's nice to know because you can at least verify that you know, regardless of what the server is doing or whether it's compromised or not, you can still see that your data that's going to the servers is properly encrypted. We'd also like to go over a few caveats to make sure that nobody jumps to any conclusions or misconstrues what we're saying about open source versus closed source software. And the first is that open source is not a guarantee of anything. It doesn't guarantee that it's secure it doesn't guarantee that it's not spying on you or doesn't contain telemetry. There's no guarantee that anybody's actually reviewing and auditing this code, you know, especially for smaller niche and obscure projects. And on the flip side of that, closed source doesn't necessarily mean that software is bad. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're opposed to it, but there are pros and cons to both that, you know, you really need to consider before you use a piece of software. Now we're going to discuss some of the issues with closed source software that uh, you should really be keeping in mind when you use it. And the first is that keeping your software closed source is a really convenient way to hide things from your users. Now I'm going to go over a few examples of that and just keep in mind I'm not necessarily implying that these companies are doing something intentionally malicious, but it certainly could be that way. And it kind of looks that way. So very recently, TrashPass, I mean, LastPass had a security incident. And one of the things that we found out was that they were not encrypting all of the password vault contents, which is 
mind-blowing. I mean, why, why would you do that? Not to mention LastPass has been around for a long time. If anybody should know that they should be encrypting all the content that their users are putting in their password vaults, it should be LastPass. So one of those things that they were not encrypting were URLs. That might not sound like a big deal, but they could be using that information or selling that information to keep tabs on what their users are doing, what kind of accounts they have and things like that. You know, it's, it's pretty concerning. Through our own research, you know, we see concerning things all the time. So we've, you know, tested and reviewed NordVPN and, you know, it's, it's a very popular VPN. It's closed source. And I think there are good reasons why they keep it closed source. Nord seems to have a very cozy relationship with Google. Their website has Google trackers in it. And at least in their iOS client, when you open NordVPN, it makes connections to Google. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want my devices connecting to Google, especially if I'm using a VPN. I mean, the, the P in VPN stands for private. There's nothing private at all about Google. So A, why are they doing that? And B, we believe that this is one of the reasons why their clients are closed source. Because if they were to show their code to the whole world, it would open up a whole host of questions like, why are you connecting my device to Google? Just the other day, I was testing a free and open source application firewall called Safing Portmaster on Windows 10. And one of the things that I noticed was that Windows Explorer, at least in Windows 10, if not Windows 11 as well, connects your computer to Bing.com. Well, what is that about? What, what does that have to do with Windows Explorer? I don't want my computer connecting to Bing.com unless I go to Bing.com. So again, this is something that software companies like to do when they can hide behind closed source code. iOS and most versions of Android have persistent tracking and telemetry that you may or may not be able to, you know, turn some of it off, but we know for a fact that some of it you cannot turn off. And, you know, Apple and, and Google are being sued all the time over things like this, over things like having toggles turning off location tracking, for example. And then we find out that, in fact, they keep tracking your location. And here's another one that you might get a kick out of. A lot of people use Google Chrome, which we definitely don't recommend. The Chromium engine behind it is open source, but basically... Google takes Chromium and then they add a bunch of spyware to it and that becomes Google Chrome. So one of the things that I actually found out by myself by going through my files and trying to understand what was in it, Chrome comes with a tool called, uh, I believe it's Chrome cleanup tool or something like that, at least on Windows. I don't know about other operating systems. This tool scans the files on your PC. And Google claims that they're just looking for malware, which is extremely suspicious for a number of reasons. One of which is Windows comes with Windows Defender, which obviously scans your files looking for malware. And who's asking Google to scan their Windows PC looking for malware? Now, that might not sound that suspicious to you, but it is suspicious. I mean, just take a look at Google's business model. Their business model is to try to collect and understand everything there is to know about you. 
and it's sitting here on your computer, scanning through all of your files, and of course, that's closed source. And they'll say things like, oh, we're just looking for malware. You know, we can only see the files in your user space. We can't see the system files. But who cares about the system files? You know, if Google is sitting there scanning your pictures, your videos, your documents, your downloads, your desktop, that's the stuff that actually matters. That's, that's the kind of stuff you don't want Google to see. And they could be abusing this for all kinds of things. They could be keeping track of what other apps you have installed, what kind of things you're writing, what kind of content you have on your system. They could be using it for fingerprinting your system. There are all kinds of ways to abuse this. It, it is concerning. And this one deserves its own episode, but if you have an Intel or an AMD CPU, be aware that Intel CPUs have something called the management engine and AMD CPUs have something called the platform security processor, which are little closed source operating systems that run inside your CPU 24 hours a day, as long as they have power, they can see all of your information before it's encrypted. I think they have some remote administration and networking capabilities. And like I said, they're closed source and these companies are very secretive about what these things do. Now, these companies will swear up and down that they're not doing anything suspicious, which if that is the case, why not show us? Why not show us the code? That's the easiest way to convince us that they're not doing anything suspicious. And if they have some good reason for not showing us the code, why not give us the ability to turn it off or buy a CPU that doesn't have these built into them? And you can read about this if you want on, on Wikipedia, on the Intel management engine page, but something very interesting happened once. Somebody noticed on Dell's website that there was a CPU option that came with the Intel management engine disabled. And when asked about it, Dell's response was basically, oh, well, that, that was an issue with their website. You weren't supposed to see that. Those CPUs are basically for the military. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty suspicious. I mean, if all it's doing is some security and, you know, administrative tasks or something, why would only the military or law enforcement or whomever be able to have it, but you, the consumer, cannot? You know, that's, that's obviously very suspicious. Okay, so this is interesting enough. I think I'm just going to go ahead and read it to you straight from Wikipedia. It says, in December, Dell began showing certain laptops on its website that offered the systems management option Intel V Pro ME inoperable custom order for an additional fee. Dell has not announced or publicly explained the methods used. In response to press requests, Dell stated that those systems had been offered for quite a while, but not for the general public, and had found their way to the website only inadvertently. The laptops are available only by custom order and only to the military, government, and intelligence agencies. They are specifically designed for covert operations, such as providing a very robust case and stealth operating mode kill switches that disables display LEDs, speaker, fan, and any wireless technology. Now, I don't know about you, but why would you need to be in the military, government, or an intelligence agency to be able to 
disable your display, LED lights, speaker, fan, or wireless technology. Like what, what is so special about that, that you need to be in one of these organizations to get access to that? And I mean, you might think that only they would have a use case for something like that, but why would they need to hide it from you? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you were an average user and you wanted to disable your LED lights or something and pay Dell a fee, why would they not even give you that option? Or is it that they're not telling you the whole truth? And we think that that's more likely. And, you know, these are just the prizes you win when you play with closed source software. This is a good segue into security because not only are there a lot of questions about what IME and PSP are actually doing, they have actually introduced very serious security vulnerabilities in people's systems, which are bound to happen because again, IME and PSP are closed source. And because they're closed source, the security community can't audit their code and look for vulnerabilities. Intel and AMD's philosophy on this is called security through obscurity. And it's the belief that you can make your code secure by hiding its implementation from the general public. This is a very flawed idea that's been around for millennia, at least as far back as the Caesar cipher. And more recently, we've seen this idea fail with things like the Enigma machine in World War II, which we were able to crack. Uh, some of the cell phone encryption mechanisms have also been cracked despite being closed source. You know, in the, in the security community, there are, you know, there are a lot of debates going on, but one thing that all security experts will agree on is that security through obscurity is a terrible idea for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, you're not allowing a lot of researchers to audit the code to look for vulnerabilities, but two, there are a lot of off-the-shelf open standards for security that anybody can use and that have had, you know, people spending years of their life trying to crack and haven't been able to do it. Another trend that's going on in the security world today in both the private and the public sector, you know, even the intelligence community would agree, is that the way to go forward if you want to be secure is trustless computing. You might have heard of this before, and, you know, unfortunately, you can't eliminate all forms of trust in your technology stack, but basically, every layer of trust that you add introduces a new set of vulnerabilities. So let's just say, for example, that you're one of these people who store passwords in an Excel file or something like that, and then back it up to Dropbox or Google Drive or something, which is a terrible thing to do. You shouldn't do that. You should listen to our podcast on why you should use a password manager. But if you think about it, there's a lot of trust involved in that, that chain. So basically you're thinking, okay, I trust Windows to not be spying on what I'm doing. I trust them not to collect my keystrokes. I'm trusting them not to take screenshots or take a copy of my file. I trust Excel not to be doing those things either. And if it sounds like I'm just making things up, you should read through Microsoft's documentation, their privacy policies, their terms of service, and read through the descriptions of some of the features in the group policy editor. And they'll tell you point blank that Windows may be capturing keystrokes, screenshots, mouse clicks, files, and other things 
for a number of reasons, like diagnostics or debugging or something like that. So I'm not just making this up. But then you're thinking, okay, I need to trust my computer. I need to trust the network that I'm on, that it's not monitoring what I'm doing. Then I need to send that through my ISP and trust that they're not doing anything malicious, um, which these days is a little bit more difficult for them to do because most web traffic is encrypted with TLS, but they are recording what people are doing. Uh, the FTC is currently investigating that, which you can read their report on it. It's, it's pretty interesting. Then when your file gets to Google Drive or Dropbox, you need to trust that they are securing it properly and won't expose it in a data breach. You're trusting that their employees aren't going to read through your documents, which sometimes they do, either manually or using automated means. Not only does that happen, but these companies sometimes will even admit to allowing contractors to access user data for, you know, tuning their algorithms or debugging or something like that. So that's also something that you need to trust them not to do. Google also had an incident with uh, Google Drive where people noticed that when they were using the takeout tool to download their, their data from Google Drive, that it was including files, uh, at least photos, if not other files, from other people's Google accounts. And then on top of that, you need to trust that they wouldn't hand that over to law enforcement, which, you know, is definitely on the table. And you need to trust that if you delete that file, that they'll actually delete it. And that's kind of shaky as well. So if you're picking up what I'm putting down, you'll notice that there's an awful lot of trust in this transaction here. And if any one of those turns out to, you know, be an issue, you've got, you might have a very big problem on your hands. That's why the name of the game these days in the security world is trustless computing. So with something like Proton Drive, for example, as opposed to Google Drive, the application is open source. We can read what it's doing and verify that it's end-to-end -end encrypting our data so that when we send our data to Proton Drive, they'll have it in an encrypted form that they can't decrypt. So worst case scenario, they could, you know, delete it or something like that, but they can't access and abuse it like a company like Google or Dropbox can. Another thing to keep in mind with developers of closed source software, especially the kinds of software that's known to do, you know, suspicious things, is they always have this excuse that they can fall back on and just claim that, you know, if they get caught doing something, that it was just a bug. I mean, think about it. If, if you're Google or Apple or something and people find out that you've been tracking their location, even though they've flip the toggle that asks them not to track your location, you can just throw your hands up in the air and say, oh, that was just a bug. What I was alluding to earlier about, you know, questions about whether some of these providers are actually deleting your data. A few years ago, Dropbox had, you know, what they essentially chalked up to as a bug where some users started reporting that they were seeing files mysteriously reappear in their Dropbox account after having been deleted, in some cases, several years ago. And, you know, of course, Dropbox just kind of blew it off and said it was, it was a bug or something like that. But, you know, I, I don't understand how their developers and their engineers could not catch something like that. I mean, if someone has been deleting files for years, how could you not catch that? 
especially if somebody's on an account that only has like, you know, a one or five gigabyte limit and they're consuming that and deleting files for years, you would think that there would be a huge discrepancy between what their servers are actually holding and what is reported on people's accounts. But again, you know, this is an excuse that these companies can throw out there when they get caught doing something that they probably shouldn't be doing. And of course, most people in the mainstream media are just going to accept it because their whole system is based on trust. You can't verify what they're doing. You can't verify whether they're doing something they shouldn't be doing or whether something is just a bug. All you have is their word. And as far as we're concerned, a big tech company's word is essentially meaningless. I mean, it, it means about as much as a politician's word. Just look at some examples in recent history. Zoom lied about their web meetings being end-to-end encrypted for years. They lied about it. They just straight up lied about it for years. Let's take Feces Book and WhatsApp, for example. So Feces Book bought WhatsApp for a little over $19 billion. Now, when somebody pays that kind of money for a free messaging app, which let's be honest, Facebook has the means and the engineers to develop a messaging app. They're not buying the app, they're buying you, the user. But when they did that, they really downplayed the risk that they would be sharing WhatsApp data with Feces Book. Their users freaked out about it, and understandably so. So they just kind of laid low about it. And eventually, I think it was like a couple years after they bought it, they updated their terms of service to allow them to start sending your WhatsApp data back to Feces Book. But while we're on the subject, you know, let this be a cautionary tale. You should be, you know, very selective about who you give your information to. Because, you know, once companies like Facebook and Google and Oracle and Microsoft get to be the size that they are, one of the things they'll do is if they don't feel like they can get the data from you that they want and that you won't give it to them, they'll just go out and buy some company that does have that data. So in addition to Feces Book buying WhatsApp, Google bought Fitbit so they could collect some of your health information. Amazon bought Roomba so they could collect information about what's going on in your home. So just keep this in mind when you're handing data over to someone because you need to be thinking about who might buy and get access to that information in the future. So for example, we use Signal and we use ProtonMail. If either one of them, you know, which I think is extremely unlikely, but if either one of them was to come out with an announcement one day and say, oh, by the way, you know, we're being bought by Google or something like that, you know, we would run away as fast as possible and go find another solution. Both Apple and Google have lied on multiple occasions about basically what some of the settings do in, in your phone. So if you say, you know, turn off analytics or disable location tracking or something like that, they were still tracking that information. I believe Apple is actually involved in a class action lawsuit for that, you know, at the time of this recording. But again, you know, these are the kinds of things that you get when you use closed source software. They use the closed source nature to hide these kinds of behaviors. If you're going to use this kind of software, you also have to be aware that some of these companies just go way, way overboard trying to protect their intellectual property. 
if you want a perfect example of that, go to Wikipedia and search for Sony BMG Copy Protection Rootkit Scandal. I'll go ahead and read some of this because it's so bad that it's, it's almost funny. So this is from Wikipedia. A scandal erupted in 2005 regarding Sony BMG's implementation of copy protection measures on about 22 million CDs. When inserted into a computer, the CDs installed one of two pieces of software that provided a form of digital rights management by modifying the operating system to interfere with CD copying. Neither program could be easily uninstalled, and they created vulnerabilities that were exploited by unrelated malware. One of these programs would install and phone home with reports on the user's private listening habits even if users refused its end-user license agreement, while the other was not mentioned in the EULA at all. Both programs contained code from several pieces of copyleft[ed] free software in an apparent infringement of copyright, and configured the operating system to hide the software's existence, leading to both programs being classified as rootkits. Sony BMG initially denied that the rootkits were harmful, it then released an uninstaller for one of the programs that merely made the program's files visible while also installing additional software that could not be easily removed, collected an email address from the user, and introduced further security vulnerabilities. Following public outcry, government investigations, and class action lawsuits in 2005 and 2006, Sony BMG partially addressed the scandal with consumer settlements, a recall of about 10% of the affected CDs, and the suspension of the CD copy protection efforts in early 2007. So just imagine for a second that you buy a CD with your money. You own it, you pop it into your computer, and it installs rootkits onto your operating system to interfere with your computer's ability to write to a disk. Not only that, it was introducing security vulnerabilities and spying on you. And the most ironic part about this, they did this to try to protect their intellectual property. At the same time, they were infringing on other people's copyrights. Now, I know this sounds like a little bit of a, a wild tangent, but the point of this is you have to understand the mentality of the people behind some of these companies like Sony and Google and Feces Book and stuff like that. I mean, just listen to what the senior vice president, Steve Heckler, said on the issue. He said, the industry will take whatever steps it needs to protect itself and protect its revenue streams. It will not lose that revenue stream no matter what. Sony is going to take aggressive steps to stop this. We will develop technology that transcends the individual user. We will firewall Napster at source. We will block it at your cable company. We will block it at your phone company. We will block it at your ISP. We will firewall it at your PC. These strategies are being aggressively pursued because there's simply too much at stake. And it didn't stop here either. Sony, I don't know if the litigation is still ongoing, but Sony sued Quad9, which is a DNS resolver, to try to force Quad9 
to remove certain domains from its registry. And you know, it's stuff like this, why we won't buy anything from Sony. Along these lines, a lot of closed source software comes with really strict terms and licensing agreements. You know, this is something that I encountered in the workplace once. We wanted Windows Server on a workstation. I can't remember exactly why, something about uh, building some of our software or something like that. But if you know anything about Windows Server, it's not as simple as just giving Microsoft a credit card number and buying a license like it is with some other operating systems. Basically, they have these things called client access licenses, and you have to license Windows Server according to how you use it. So our IT team was talking to me and he's asking me questions like, well, how many CPUs does the system have? How many people are gonna use it? How many people are going to remote into the system to access it? And I can't even answer some of these questions. I'm like, well, first of all, I have no idea. I mean, if somebody remoted into the system, I might not even know who that is or why they're remoting into it. And like, what is a user? Like, what if, you know, our Jenkins system gets on there and compiles some code? Is that a user? You know, th these are the kinds of headaches that you run into. Alternatively, you can use things like Linux and never have to worry about things like this. And you don't, really realize how big of a deal that is until you start using free software that you realize like how much easier it makes your life, especially if you're trying to stay in compliant with the law. There have been a lot of issues and questions about that in the software development and IT space in general, particularly around virtual machines. Like what if I want to make a virtual machine and put Windows on it just to test an application real quick? Do I have to get a license? Like you know, who wants to deal with that? And I bet a lot of people out there are thinking to themselves, well, you know, this is why I just torrent and, and use cracked software and things like that. But, you know, that's a terrible idea because, you know, not only is that illegal, but it's relatively easy for somebody, you know, whoever's providing you that cracked software to put malware in it. And, you know, we do see examples of you know, like Photoshop and games and stuff that are cracked containing malware. So now I'm going to drop some truth bombs on you to help drive this point home that in general, closed source software has a lot of issues that you need to be aware of. And part of this is not just where we stand today, but where does it look like this is going in the future? So if you follow what Apple and some of these other companies are doing, they're increasingly treating your devices and your data on your devices is not really being yours. They, they have this growing attitude that it's not just their right to monitor what you're doing, understand what you're doing, and scan your content for material that they or the government doesn't approve of, but that it's almost their obligation to, you know, protect the children, for example. You know, Apple is supposed to be like the champion of privacy. They've got things like billboards that say what happens when your iPhone stays on your iPhone, which is, you know, one of the biggest lies I've ever heard in my life. And they come out telling the world, hey, we're going to start scanning your content on your device. And if it matches certain criteria, we're going to send it back to base. Our employees are going to look at it. And if it meets other criteria, 
we're going to send that to law enforcement. Naturally, a lot of people freaked out about that, and for good reason, and they've since backed off on that, or at least told us that they've backed off on that, which again, almost everything they do is closed source. We just have to take their word on that. But, you know, this is the way that these things always start. They throw out the idea, people freak out about it, like WhatsApp sending data to feces book, and these companies just sit back and they wait for the outcry to die down, and then they bring it up again and again and again until they get their way. So we're not necessarily of the opinion that Apple or anybody else is doing client-side scanning, although it is possible. But at the same time, we also believe that this debate is going to come up again. And it wouldn't surprise us at all if, you know, in in not too many years, this not only gets implemented, but becomes a standard practice between Apple and Google and Microsoft and, you know, the usual suspects. We should also be concerned about closed source encryption. You know, Microsoft has their BitLocker, for example. It's closed source. You know, why why would that be? I mean, think about that for a second. Give me one reason why BitLocker should be closed source. Or tell me one risk that Microsoft faces by making it open source, which it should be. Any critical security application should be open source. Otherwise, we don't know if we can trust it. We don't know if there's a backdoor in it. We don't know if they've made a serious mistake. You're taking a huge risk by using encryption that you can't verify. And that might sound a little tinfoil hat to some people, but look at this through the proper context. Microsoft has been working very closely with the NSA and other such organizations for many years now. And those organizations and the governments behind those organizations have been very clear that they don't like encryption. They don't want you to have encryption. In fact, certain, you know, encryption over a certain number of bits was actually considered a weapon subject to arms controls laws for years in the United States. And, you know, the United States government, the UK government, Australians have been very vocal about you know, engaging in a war on encryption. They don't want you to have encryption. They don't want you using end-to-end encrypted messaging. You know, in the UK, they spent, you know, a pretty decent amount of money developing commercials in a marketing campaign to try to convince UK citizens that you shouldn't use encryption because it helps child predators hide from the law. And back to client-side scanning for just a second, I think a lot of people are failing to appreciate what's going on and how this applies to encryption. So basically what Apple and other companies are proposing is trying to convince you that you can still have your encryption, but at the same time, allow them and law enforcement to analyze what you're doing by basically looking at your files or your communications or whatever before it's encrypted. They believe that this is some way that they can kind of have their cake and eat it too, because it's, you know, just one of the accepted truths in the security community that there is no such thing as a backdoor only for the good guys. But, you know, Apple and these other companies disagree and they think that this is the answer. They'll say, look guys, there's nothing to worry about. You still have your encryption. 
but that's kind of moot if they're going to sit there and analyze your content before it's encrypted. At that point, I mean, you're basically reduced to encryption during transit, which is better than nothing, but now we're going backwards. You know, we've had transport layer encryption for a long time, and recently we've discovered the value in end-to-end encryption, and Apple and other players are trying to break it. Another disturbing trend that we see that users should be aware of is that Microsoft and now Apple are really getting big into advertising. I think Microsoft doesn't surprise anybody. You know, this kind of started with Windows 10 when that came out. You know, a lot of people were very concerned about the telemetry and Cortana and inking and typing and logging your keystrokes and all kinds of crazy things that it does. But now it looks like Apple is, you know, really pushing to get into the advertising space. To help illustrate that point, a little while ago we saw a story where, I can't remember where he found it, I think it was in like the developer program or something like that, but somebody noticed that Microsoft was working on a feature that would embed ads into Windows Explorer. Now you might not think that that's a big deal, and I guess on paper it might not be, but the ads are not really the point. The, the issue with internet ads is not the ads themselves, it's the data collection that's behind them. And I think it's pretty safe to say that if or when Windows and Apple start including adware in their operating systems, that that's going to coincide with collecting more of your data. And this is consistent with what I was talking about earlier with Safing Portmaster showing that Windows Explorer was contacting Bing.com, which is, you know, Microsoft's search engine and a big part of their ad network. But another thing that's important about that is what, what these companies are doing is they're starting to blur the lines between their devices and infrastructure, their services, and your local devices. Because once you blur that line, it makes it very easy for them to justify collecting your data. Because as soon as, you know, your computer starts sharing data with Bing.com, well, now you're subject to Bing's terms and conditions, and you, you don't even know that this is going on in the background. You know, have you ever wondered why Apple tries so hard to push your data into iCloud? It's because when your data goes to iCloud, now it's under their jurisdiction. Now they can justify doing whatever they want to it. So the takeaway there is that you need to realize that Windows and Mac OS and probably other operating systems are turning into, you know, if you could imagine a feces book made an operating system, that's basically what they're turning into. So if that concerns you, and it probably should, you might want to start thinking now about an exit strategy, because the last thing you want is some sort of, you know, Snowden level revelation that these companies have been doing you know, extremely abusive or malicious things with your devices and your data for years, you know, at that point, it's kind of too late. I mean, think about how much information and data these companies hold on the average person. Just as a kind of a comical example, the other day I was kind of bored and I was just searching about an old service that everyone used decades ago called Photo Bucket. You might have used it. So, Basically, they host photos, and it used to be free. So a lot of people were using PhotoBucket for many, many years. It was the place where they just backed up their photos. 
And one day people started logging on to PhotoBucket and they would see this pop-up come up. It says, hey, this is not free anymore. We're not going to let you into your account until you pay us. I think it was $400 or 400 pounds or whatever it was. So now they're holding your data hostage. You don't want to run into a situation like that. You don't want, you know, Windows or Apple or whoever to change their terms on you like that someday and put you in a real serious box where you, you can't get out. That might sound a little far-fetched, but another thing for you to consider, Microsoft is also toying with the idea of making Windows a cloud-based operating system. And I don't think they would ever admit to this, but I think what they would like to see in the future is that there is no Windows on your machine. You have to log into Windows on their machines. I mean, think about that for a minute. For one, it would be very easy for them to force you to pay like a subscription model. And they would justify that by saying, well, look, you're using our servers and stuff. That stuff's not free. You got to pay for it. And for two, they could shut you down at any minute. Like, sorry, you can't log into your own computer because now it's on our computer. And three, then that would obviously give them access to read and write any file in your system. So again, just take a look at what these companies are doing and what they're saying and try to extrapolate that out into the future and think to yourself, is that a future that I want to see? Or does it make sense for me to look into other options like free and open source software? So let me share some stories with you, which will help make sense of some of these things that we're talking about here. Recently, I saw this story where some guy bought a device on Amazon. I think it was some kind of media streaming device or something like that. Well, soon after that, he noticed on his pie hole system, which is a, it's a DNS sinkhole. It, it basically you connect your devices to the a pie hole on your network and it filters all of your DNS queries. And if it sees anything that looks suspicious or meets certain rules, it'll just drop it and not let it go through to the internet. And we'll talk about that in a separate episode. But what he noticed was that device came from Amazon pre-infected with malware and it was trying to connect to known malware domains and his pie hole caught it. So luckily he had that or he wouldn't have noticed that. But again, that's what happens when you're using closed source stuff. And from my personal experience, I'll share a couple of reasons why I stopped using certain Google products. So I used to use Google Drive because, you know, many years ago, that was the thing to do. Over time, I slowly started, you know, picking up the pieces as to, you know, what Google and other companies were up to and just how creepy they are. So I started or I stopped using Google products for anything, you know, remotely personal. And basically I was just using it for taking notes on things like investments and things like that, which we're also working on a financial podcast, by the way. So you should look for our bigger insights finance podcast. But anyway, I was writing notes on uranium investing because I'm interested in that. I think it's got good long-term potential, but I was, I was writing in my, Google Drive notes about uranium. And, you know, one of the things to keep in mind when you're using Google products is they're analyzing everything you type, everything you click on. Using automation, of course, there's not like employees sitting there watching what you're typing. It's all automated. And I started to feel kind of weird about it. Like, hey, am I going to be 
you know, investigated or put on a list somewhere because I'm writing about uranium. I mean, obviously, you know, there's different reasons someone might be writing about uranium and obviously some of those are not good. And, uh, you know, that's, those are just the games you play when you use these kinds of services. So after that, I started using Microsoft Office a little bit more. You know, at least it's local, but it's got the same, you know, presents some of the same kind of risks. It's closed source. It's connected to the internet. These products do contact Microsoft, who knows what kind of information they're sharing and who knows what they're programmed to look for. I would bet a lot of money that if you type certain things into certain Microsoft Office products, that that will get sent to Microsoft and potentially law enforcement. So you really need to think about what you're doing, what you're typing, what you're saying, and how might that be misinterpreted or misconstrued, especially by automation. I mean, that's one of the most difficult things to do is to teach AI, for example, how to understand context. You know, it's very easy to say if anybody types anything containing the word uranium, let's send it back to base and analyze it. But it's very difficult to teach automation to understand the context of what people are saying and, you know, say, ignore something like if somebody's writing about it, you know, researching investments. And another thing that we, you know, talk about in our finance podcast is about taxes. And I remember one day, you know, years ago, many years ago, when I used to use Google search, which is also problematic, I was searching for information on how people file fraudulent tax returns. Because when I was very young and I filed one of my first returns, I had a typo. So I, I typed a number, it was like something, something, something 34, and it was supposed to be 43. And the IRS immediately rejected it. So I've been wondering for years, like, well, how is it possible that some random person can file fraudulent returns if the IRS already knows all this information? How does it, how do they do it? So I was searching for it on Google and then I was thinking to myself, you know, cause I know that Google goes to great lengths to try to understand who everybody is, who's using their systems and match their queries to their identity. So if you're using Google, you know, you run the risk of them retaining a permanent copy of everything that you've ever searched in it. And I was thinking, you know, this could very easily be misinterpreted as me expressing interest in filing fraudulent returns. And that might sound kind of far-fetched to some of you, but just keep in mind that people are arrested over Google searches. Law enforcement do what they call keyword search warrants, where They'll basically ask Google and certain other companies for a list of everybody who has searched for certain things like uranium, for example, and Google search queries do end up in criminal and civil court cases. So a lot of you are probably too young to remember, but when Casey Anthony was being tried for murder, one of the pieces of evidence that they used against her were her Google search queries. And they said that she searched for things like neck breaking and how to make chloroform and so on. And, you know, I don't think anybody's shedding any tears for her, but the point is this stuff is being monitored. So you need to keep that in mind when you're using services like Google. So over time, I just started 
you know, thinking more about these things and how these systems work and, and how easy it is to misunderstand what people are doing, why they're doing it, what they're saying, why they're saying it, that eventually I came to the conclusion that it would just be best to just not use these things and use products and services that don't record and analyze everything that you're doing. So to help wrap up the issues with closed source software, there's a couple things that we want to say. And one of those is the phrase, you might've heard it a lot, is play stupid games, win stupid prizes. You know, one of the things that surprises me is when people use these kinds of products and services, and then they find out that these companies have been recording what they're doing or reading through their emails or something like that. And they get all upset about it. And, you know, the, the takeaway here is that if you're going to use closed source software, especially if it's from companies like Microsoft and Apple and Facebook and Google and whatnot, these are the prizes that you win. Don't be surprised when you find out that they've been abusing you. But more importantly, we want to emphasize that it doesn't have to be this way. You know, one of the things that we observe is that a lot of people seem to have just given up. Some of these things that we're talking about is not exactly a secret anymore. And we're concerned that a lot of people continue to use software and services that we would consider to be spyware because they've just accepted that this is just the way that it is. If you want to use a computer or a phone or take notes or use email, you just have to accept the spying. And that's just not the case. You know, for entertainment, I used to watch a lot of these videos on YouTube. There are entire channels dedicated to basically people exposing and talking to these internet scammers. Like there's a lot of like tech support scammers and IRS scammers and things like that. And in one of them, this guy actually got a hold of one of the victims on the phone and he said, Hey, those guys that you were just talking to about your computer or whatever, you know, they were telling her to go to Walmart or something and buy a bunch of iTunes gift cards or something stupid like that. And, you know, unfortunately a lot of people fall for those things, but this YouTuber called the victim and said, Hey, those guys that you were talking to on the phone, those guys were scammers. You know, Microsoft is not going to call you and tell you that you've got a, a problem with your computer or whatever. And her response to that was, well, everybody's trying to scam you. And it, it was such a sad thing to say because basically what she's saying is I don't care to learn what's going on and try to protect myself because this is just the way that the world works. So if you're in that camp and it seems like a lot of people are, we're going to try to convince you that that's not just the way that things have to be. We're going to talk about alternatives that you can use to get away from a lot of these kinds of problems. So let's switch gears and talk about why FOSS or free and open source software is so great as compared to most other closed source software out there. So we've alluded to this earlier in the episode, but with FOSS software, there is a high potential that that code is being reviewed by others for all kinds of issues, privacy issues, security issues. In addition to that, the community can come together and actually contribute to the software and make it better. I think it surprises people sometimes how great and advanced some of this free software actually is. And that's one of the reasons is because the whole world can contribute to it. And if you're using it and you know, you find a small bug or 
you know how to code and you want to add a nice feature to it because it, it will help you in your workflow or something, you can do that. I mean, you, you know, good luck trying that with, with Microsoft Windows or something. You can't do that. Another advantage that I don't think gets talked about often enough is how liberating it can feel to use free and open source software. I thought about it before recording this episode, but I don't think I use a single piece of closed source software anymore. Now, maybe there's some like proprietary blob somewhere that I'm not aware of, but, and I do have some Windows systems mostly for testing, but we use Linux, Audacity, LibreOffice, Caden Live, you know, on and on. These are all free softwares that are quite amazing as far as we're concerned. And it's a very liberating feeling knowing that, you know, we don't have to pay for them. We can donate to these projects if we want to. We don't have to license them which can be a huge pain. I remember at one of the places that I worked at, we had to have this special license server that held license keys for all the different software that we used. You know, we might've only had like 10 keys for SolidWorks or something like that. And, you know, you would try to open up SolidWorks and then it's like, no, sorry, there's no more keys. And you gotta go around and figure out who's got the other 10 keys and try to beg them to get off of it. Or sometimes our license server would go down because Windows is installing updates or something stupid like that. It's just a huge pain that you don't have to deal with when you're using FOSS. And obviously, with much of this software being free, as in free beer, these can be easier in your budget as well. I mean, this is also something that we ran into at one of the places I worked was, you know, they're looking at their software bill going, oh my God, this is enormous. Can we switch, you know, these screenshot programs and, and other little things with free and open source software? And the answer was yes. And that's what they did and saved a bunch of money. Free software is usually less bloated and easier on your PC's resources. So I obviously don't use Adobe to open up PDFs, but back when I did, like at my old office, it would do this thing where every time I tried to open a PDF, it would hang and it would just spin and load for sometimes minutes just to open one PDF. You know, on my Linux systems, I use something called document viewer. It just opens them up right away. This is a, a very common benefit with FOSS software. Same thing with virtual machines. I mean, I could run literally hundreds of virtual machines on my laptop. I've got 64 gigs in it, but a lot of these Linux distributions only use a few hundred megabytes of RAM. I mean, try opening, you know, a few hundred Windows 10 virtual machines or something. It's just, it's just not going to happen. And just to make this a little bit more concrete, you might not have realized this, but you might recognize some of these names that I'm about to list off. But if you really think about it, many of the most trusted, most useful softwares out there are FOSS. I mean, just think about it. We got Linux, BSD, RSync, Signal, LibreOffice, Veracrypt, KeePass, 7-Zip. A lot of VPN clients are open source. Firefox, Brave. Blender, Audacity, Caden Live, Git, VLC, OBS Studio, Pi-hole, on and on. I mean, not only are these applications free and open source software, but they're amazing. I mean, a lot of them are better than their expensive proprietary spyware counterparts. And just to help demonstrate how they can be better, there have been multiple instances in my life where Windows has screwed up partitions on a flash drive. 
and nothing you could do would get it to work. It wouldn't even show up in Disk Manager. I even read through Microsoft documentation to run some tool in PowerShell on the command line where it asks you a bunch of options and you pick like number one and then you pick number three and it tries to like recover it or something. And even that failed. So what do I do? I pull up a, a live Linux image, boot it up, open the disk and gparted. It immediately recognizes it, blows the whole thing away and repartitions it. No, no problem. You know, that's embarrassing. Like how can this free utility do a better job of partitioning Windows partitions than Windows can? Here's another example, VLC. You've probably used VLC. It's the media player with the little orange cone as the icon. That thing, not only is it FOSS, it can play just about anything. Not only can it play anything, you can also use it to look at uh, file metadata. You can edit the file metadata. You can stream content from the internet. It can convert between different formats. And I, I remember seeing a meme many years ago where someone got a pop-up from Windows Media Player that said something like, hey, uh, you don't have the codec to watch this video, so you need to pay us like a certain number of dollars to buy this codec. And the person's response was, or I could just use VLC. And I mean, just think about that for a second. I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive to the average person how free and open source software can not only be free, but better than proprietary software. And it's not spying on you. I mean, just think about that. It's crazy. Here's another example that's kind of funny. So I use a Focusrite Scarlet audio interface. And if you read the documentation for that, they basically say you need to be on Windows or Mac, which I'm not. And, you know, someone in the Linux community basically reverse engineered the thing and wrote an application for it that is not only free and open source, but it's more powerful the official Focusrite control app or whatever they call it, at least in some sense, you know, it, it provides this uh, graphical tool where I can basically map any logical input and output however I want, and it's persistent. So I can set it up on one machine and unplug it and any other machine that I plug it into, all those settings remain. Now, we're of the opinion that a lot of people don't even consider looking for FOSS alternatives to their proprietary software because they just believe that it's not very good or they're like, oh man, well, this, this software is very complicated. You know, there's no way that there's some good free option out there for me, but you should really start looking into this. So let's take Windows and Mac OS, for example. We're going to do a separate episode about this, but what I can tell you right now is Linux is shockingly good these days. It's very stable. I've used it on a lot of different systems, including ones that are over 10 years old. You know, it's very light on resources. So you can use it on old or weak computers, like an old laptop or something. The user experience is actually pretty amazing. You know, I'm using Fedora right now to record this episode. And I think it would shock most, at least Windows users, how easy it is to do things like change the network settings, for example. You know, I don't need to click through eight different dialogues that were written, you know, 15, 20 years ago, just to do something like change my DNS settings. Let's take Google Chrome, for example. That also deserves its own separate episode. 
But the short story there is that Chrome is spyware. It was written by Google to spy on your browsing habits. Now it's built on an open source engine called Chromium. And there are other projects out there like Brave that's built on Chromium as well that doesn't include Google spyware. So you can check that out. And obviously there's, there's Firefox and certain other options which are worth considering. What about Adobe products? I know Adobe is a big sticking point for a lot of people. From what I understand, some of their products are Windows only, which is, or at least it used to be. I don't know if that's still the case, but that's um, kind of a strange business decision. But if all you need to do is open PDFs or something, you don't need Adobe Reader. You know, I haven't opened Adobe Reader in years. You know, on Linux, there's Document Viewer and a lot of other options, actually. On Windows, you can use something called Sumatra PDF or something like that. That's open source, and that is like infinitely faster than Adobe Reader, ironically. What about Photoshop? You know, Photoshop is probably one of the most torrented applications on the planet because, you know, it's powerful and, and everybody wants to edit a photo from time to time. Um, you can use GIMP. GIMP is a Photoshop alternative. It's you know, I'm sure that there's some features that aren't in GIMP that are in Photoshop. So if you're doing work professionally, I could see a case where you might actually need Photoshop. But, you know, for probably 99% of home users, GIMP will do everything that they need it to do. Same thing with Illustrator. You know, Illustrator is really nice. If you need to make vector artwork, like a logo or something, it's cool. But it's expensive. It's proprietary and so on. You can use Inkscape. Inkscape is free open source software. It's very similar to Illustrator. Um, it works with open source file formats like SVG, which you can also import into Illustrator if you need to. And again, if you're a professional, you know, you might have a, a good reason to need Illustrator, but most people I'm quite confident could get away with just using Inkscape. Even for accounting software, you know, a lot of people use QuickBooks. There's something called GNU Cache. That's G-N-U-C-A-S-H. It's free and open source. You know, I'm sure it's not as powerful as QuickBooks, but again, I bet you it would serve the needs of most individuals and small businesses out there. What about VMware? You know, very powerful. It's great. Whatever. There's Virtual Machine Manager, VirtualBox, Boxes, on and on. You know, there are a lot of other options out there that are free and they're extremely fast. I mean, I can boot up, you know, a, a Fedora VM in like a few seconds, you know, try doing that with, you know, VMware and, and Windows. It's not going to happen. Google Play Store, you can use F-Droid or Aurora. Those are both open source and uh, they're quite nice. I mean, in reality, at least with F-Droid, it contains some of the best Android apps out there that you won't find in the Play Store because, you know, some of these developers, they don't want to abide by Google or Apple's terms of service. MATLAB, for example, great program. It's also quite expensive. I mean, some of the toolboxes for MATLAB are as expensive as $10,000 last time I checked. Um, there's an alternative out there called GNU Octave. Now, again, it, it might not contain all the same features, but it might suit all of your needs for free. Microsoft SQL, it's fine, very expensive. Uh, you can use PostgreSQL, which from what I hear is actually quite amazing. 
a lot of people use um, a torrenting program called MuTorrent. Now, it was really popular back in the day. Not only is that closed source, but it's got a very, very long history of embedding basically malware into it. I remember I was installing it on a system many years ago, and my antivirus popped up and said that it was trying to install some malware called Open Candy, which is adware, basically. And, you know, not only is it closed source, but like, why would you want to deal with that? Especially since there are better, more trusted open source alternatives that don't install malware on your system, like Qubit Torrent, KTorrent, Transmission. There's tons of them. And, you know, what some people will say is, oh, don't worry. I've got this version of MuTorrent that's like 12 years old. I never updated. I've got the settings set just right. And it's everything's cool. Well, you know, the problem with that is, you know, if you're using networking software that hasn't been updated in 12 years, it's probably riddled with holes. You know, a lot of, if you actually look at change logs for software, a lot of those changes are security improvements. So why would you accept that kind of risk when you can just switch to something that's actually trusted and gets updates? Resilio Sync is a file syncing tool. Pretty cool, I guess. You know, it's an alternative to something like Dropbox where you can basically sync between your devices rather than using the cloud, which is really just someone else's computer. Problem with it is it's, it's closed source. You know, you have to pay for it, which is whatever. That's not a huge deal, but it's closed source. And, you know, last time I checked, their apps made connections to Google, which, you know, like we talked about with NordVPN, if you're trying to set up a private cloud or a private connection, last thing you want is that software talking to Google. So instead of Resilio Sync, you can use something like SyncThing, which is amazing. The only problem with that one is there's no iOS client. And there are even FOSS games out there. Some of them actually look pretty amazing and, and quite sophisticated. Um, can't really speak to any of them specifically because I don't really have time for that. But, you know, the point of this is that there are a lot of amazing FOSS alternatives out there that you should really consider looking into. So to wrap up why we think FOSS is great, we've got three major points that you should consider. The first is that the world runs on FOSS. You know, if you take a look at IoT devices, medical devices, most web servers, clouds, HPCs, these almost all run some variant of Linux and other FOSS software. And for good reason, too. I mean, they're stable. You know, you don't have to license it. It's free. I mean, just imagine you're being operated on by a medical device running Windows and the thing shuts down on you because it's installing updates or blue screens or something like that. I actually tried to look this up and I couldn't really find a great answer. So if anyone knows, let us know in the comments. But I bet that Microsoft Azure, you know, their cloud computing service is built on Linux as well. I couldn't imagine that being built on Windows. The second big takeaway is that, you know, there's a perception that a free application must be at best just an 80 for 20 solution, meaning that, you know, it gets you most of the way there at very little cost, but it, you know, in practice, it's more like 90 or 95 for zero. I mean, you're not paying for it most of the time, which right off the bat, that's a great deal. And that's a very high bar for proprietary software to, to overcome. 
But like I was saying before about VLC, some of these applications are actually better than the ones that you're paying for and they're open source and they're not spying on you. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine, you know, paying for a media player, for example, that's closed source and reporting your viewing habits to Google or something like that. Why would you do that when you can use something like VLC for free? And the third item is similar to what we were saying before about Windows and Mac OS going downhill and basically becoming adware. You know, this is also the road that a lot of proprietary software is going down. So what you can look forward to in the future of proprietary software is, you know, everything moving toward a subscription-based model where you have to pay, you know, infinitely for these things and still be spied on and be served ads. Now, if you're like us and you don't like the sound of that, then, you know, it obviously behooves you to start thinking of an exit strategy. Now, to be fair, we should mention that FOSS software is not a panacea. There's no guarantees that it's private. There's no guarantees that it's safe. We do find issues in these projects sometimes. We'll find bugs. Some of these projects are open about including telemetry. Uh, some of them also serve you ads. They're very open about that as well. And I think recently we saw it was either with PIP or one of these other package systems that had some malicious packages that, you know, somebody found and they had to remove those. So, you know, that's a, that's a risk. Uh, Linux, you know, a lot of people think Linux is bulletproof. That's definitely not true. You know, we like Linux. We use it on a regular basis, but you know, it's liable to have security holes in it, just like any other operating system. Um, it's not that uncommon to see, you know, security vulnerabilities in Linux that have been sitting around for like 10 years. So, you know, don't feel like you're bulletproof because you're using something like Linux. Any software is also vulnerable to supply chain attacks. I don't know if you heard about CCleaner. I don't think that one's actually open source, but it proves a point. CCleaner, you know, the developer got hacked somehow and someone injected malicious code into CCleaner during the build process and distributed malware to their users. Now, even though code is open source, it is still technically possible to modify the code during the build process and not commit it to their repository. And, you know, there are some mechanisms for checking that, but it is a, it is a possibility to be aware of. I'm pretty sure Linux Mint also had a security incident in their website where the ISO for the operating system was replaced with a malicious one. So people installed basically a malicious operating system. Another thing to keep in mind is you have to wonder whether the code that you're seeing, you know, in their GitHub or GitLab repo actually matches the installer that you're using or whether anybody's even looking at the code. And, you know, this is more of a risk with smaller projects, things that are a little bit more niche that, you know, just don't have a lot of eyeballs on them. And we should also mention that FOSS projects are also targets of certain kinds of attackers, because if you have the code, it's very easy to, you know, download it, insert malware into it, build an executable or an installer, and then try to trick somebody into installing it. And if you can do that, then they might be running a real application and not have any idea that it's actually infected. Now that's not, you know, a direct 
criticism of FOSS, but it's just something to be aware of. There are, you know, infected versions of OBS and, and a lot of other projects out there. You just need to make sure that you're installing them from, you know, the proper source. But, you know, we get it. We get that sometimes you want or need to deal with closed source software. So we're going to take a couple minutes just to, to give you some ideas as to how you can run closed source software and minimize, you know, some of the privacy and security risks that might come along with that. The, the first thing to keep in mind is you want to keep it to a minimum. You know, the more proprietary software you use, the more likely it is that you're going to have a problem. You should also be thinking about how you can isolate these closed source softwares as much as possible. And there are a lot of ways to do that. One of the best ones is to use separate devices. So if you talk to a lot of people in the privacy and security community, they'll tell you that, you know, we do this as well. If you're going to be playing games or you have certain applications, like you really need to use Photoshop or DaVinci Resolve or something like that, consider doing that on a separate device, you know, a device that you don't have a lot of sensitive personal information on. And another thing that you can try is to use and prefer web applications. A lot of services out there like uh, Spotify, I think I heard that Uber does this as well. They have web applications that you can use, which is nice because that allows you to try to isolate some of your activities and data collection in your web browser, as opposed to actually installing their app on your device. So when you install an app on your device, you're giving it usually much more control over your device and what data it has access to than it would be if you just run that application as a web application in your browser. And the reason for this is because when you run a web app, that app is beholden to the settings and the limitations imposed by that web browser, which of course is beholden to the operating system. So that gives you an extra layer of protection as opposed to running the native application directly on your operating system. Another thing that you should be using to help keep your activities isolated are virtual machines. These are very powerful and they're a great way of keeping applications from communicating with each other or accessing data that you don't want them to have access to. Or if they turn out to be malicious, you can typically just delete the virtual machine and pretend like that never happened. And finally, there are a lot of techniques for managing the traffic between an application and the outside world. And you can do that with firewalls. You know, an application firewall like Safing Portmaster is a great way to do that. You can also use, you know, DNS filtering like Pi-hole or NextDNS or something like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't talk about this, but virtual LANs, VLANs, those can also be very helpful as well by segmenting your network traffic. So to wrap this up, let's talk about action items. First of all, don't install something just because it's FOSS. You know, there are shady applications and projects out there. Bad actors are aware that, you know, a lot of people have a false sense of security using FOSS applications. So you still need to do your due diligence about, you know, the application and the team behind it and what exactly it does and whether it fits your needs and also be careful about where you download it from. I always recommend going straight to the source, you know, 
most projects have a downloads page on their website, so you don't really benefit by going to, you know, FossHub or one of these other sites that distribute software. Just go to the source first. And, you know, it is possible that they'll link to something else, like they might link to FossHub or they might link to GitHub or something like that. But at least you know that that's what they're telling you to do. And before you find yourself trapped, like a lot of WhatsApp users felt when Feces Book took over, start identifying the proprietary apps and services that you rely on and try to start switching them over to something, you know, more open source or more privacy friendly. I think that, you know, a lot of people just are under the impression that, you know, if something bad happens or something changes against you, then you'll switch. But unfortunately, you know, a lot of times it's too late by that point. So like we started warning our clients, you know, more than a year ago about LastPass and recommending that they switch to either KeyPass or Bitwarden. And since then, LastPass has had a major security breach, which doesn't surprise us in the least. And, you know, now people are freaking out about it because they're wondering whether their password vaults are safe. So with the proprietary apps that you don't feel like you can replace with FOSS apps for whatever reason, you know, ask yourself, can you just get rid of it? Some of them you probably can. Can you switch from a native app to a web app? You know, that could give you a, a pretty big privacy and security boost. It's worth thinking about. And if those fail, then you should be thinking about isolating it in a virtual machine or a separate device or something. If you are using FOSS projects, consider donating to them. You know, most of them rely entirely on donations. And every once in a while, we do see one just quit because, you know, it's just not worth it to them for one reason or another. So, you know, if you have a little bit of money to spare, why don't you go ahead and help them out? And finally, knowing this information is one thing, but actually sitting down and putting it into practice is another. So consider becoming a Bigger Insights client. We help our clients live more private and secure lives by helping them navigate these kinds of issues in one-on-one -on -one sessions. If you're interested, fill out the short form at the bottom of our website, biggerinsights.com. Otherwise, please spread this message by sharing it with others. The more people that we share this message with, the better off we think we'll all be. And with that, thanks for staying to the end. Take care and stay safe out there.